This is Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. We bring you the latest and best strategies, tactics, and information to help employers boost their bottom lines. Welcome to today's program. I'm Stephen Van Yoder. And I'm Jim Purcell. And we're the co-founders of the Returns on Wellbeing Institute. Welcome to today's podcast. A recent study by the Kaiser Family Foundation found the COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting economic recession have negatively affected many people's mental health and created new barriers for those already suffering from mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Pandemic is clearly exacerbating mental health issues. Today, four in 10 adults suffer not only from anxiety and depression, but they also report difficulty in sleeping, higher alcohol consumption, and increased substance abuse. And while the pandemic will eventually end, it will have a lasting impact on employee mental health. Employers must take steps now to support employee mental health and develop programs that ensure those suffering from mental health disorders get the help they need. Here with us today to discuss this is Daryl Moon, a former CEO of mental health hospitals and the founder and CEO of Orient, an employee well-being consultancy. Today, we're going to explore the current mental health crisis and how employers can support employee mental health in the wake of COVID-19. Daryl, thank you very much for being on today's podcast. My pleasure. Hi, Daryl. We just painted a pretty bleak picture of employee mental health today. What are you seeing out there? I don't think there's any question that the pandemic has increased what already was one of our biggest crises in mm-hmm. healthcare. If you look at all the risk factors that produce increased healthcare costs, nothing compares to depression and uncontrolled stress. And so it's already, and has been for years, the number one highest risk factor. And the pandemic has accentuated that in a significant way. Now, I will say that we have seen a greater acceptance on the part of people in general to address mental health issues. It's almost like since we're all suffering from the mental health stress of the pandemic, it's more acceptable to talk about it and to say, yeah, me too. I'm experiencing these challenges. In fact, I think there's few people across the world that haven't experienced some level of anxiety or depression or stress due to the pandemic. Daryl, based on your years of experience managing psychiatric hospitals, what do you think are the top three current mental health issues today? And those as compared to before the pandemic and then what that's we're seeing today in the workplace during the pandemic? Well, the number one biggest issue related to mental health, both prior to the pandemic and now even more important, is the fact that people wait on average 10 years after mental health symptoms begin to appear to reach out for help. And almost 60% of people never reach out for help. So therein lies the biggest problem. Yes, we need a better system to deal with those who reach out, but if we don't address this big black empty box of people that are suffering from mental health symptoms and aren't reaching out for help and aren't getting any help, therein lies our biggest crisis in my opinion. Yes, we need to improve the delivery of the system and we need to make sure that people don't fall through the cracks, but it's getting people in early. And even though there's been a greater acceptance of the fact that everybody's struggling, it's still the number one biggest issue that we have to address. Let's look ahead for a moment. Assuming Americans are mostly vaccinated by fall and we return to some version of normal 
What is that going to mean for mental well-being? Will the additional levels of stress, depression, and substance abuse that was experienced during COVID disappear, or are we going to see a new normal? Well, there's no question that it's going to take a lot longer to address the emotional impacts of the pandemic than the physical. And that's been the case with disasters throughout history. The emotional impact or mental health impact of disasters extend far beyond the physical impact. So we know it's going to last for a while. However, I don't know that we'll ever return to normalcy like we we had before. You know, the, the lasting impact of the pandemic on our children, the young adults who have suffered probably more than anyone emotionally from a mental health standpoint because of the pandemic, we'll see the impact of what that's done for generations to come. One variable, one new thing that's coming out of the of uh, the pandemic is that people were initially forced to work from home. And we recently spoke with someone at Gallup and data there is showing that more and more employers anticipate allowing them to continue working at home, if not most of the time, but at least some of the time. And, uh, you know, we think that that actually brings new implications for, for mental health. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit, what you're seeing or what you think uh, employers need to be aware of moving forward? Well, we have known for many years that the number one greatest predictor of future healthcare costs is a person's social support. And so if someone indicates that they're lonely and they're experiencing a lack of social support, therein lies your greatest indicator of future healthcare costs. So the more we move to an isolated work environment, the more we accentuate that isolation. So I think that's something that employers have to take into consideration in a considerable way. It needs to be a focus of how do we still build, if we're going to allow employers, employees to work isolated, how do we still build the community that is so critical amongst employees that often is a support system that people need? The more you spend all your time in your home with your family without people being able to go outside and come back in, creates another level of opportunity for stress. I think the most important thing that employers can do is recognize that when they offer health benefits and create cultures of well-being is they want to be able to attract top talent. That is the number one thing employers say they want by offering benefits and by enhancing their cultures. They want to produce, they want to be able to retain and attract good employees. And they also want their employees to be healthy and productive. No question about it. So if that is the goal, then instead of buying, as they always have, simply a health insurance policy to handle people when they fall off a cliff, they're missing an incredibly large component of what people need to stay healthy and be productive. And and historically in this country, that is what employers have done. They have purchased a deficit-based health insurance policy that's going to address the worst cases of sick care, but does not address the big, huge gap of keeping their people healthy in the first place. And so creating what I call an aspirational healthcare benefit for their employees is perhaps the most important thing employers can do to create a healthy workforce and to deal with the impact of the mental health and the mental illness issues. What is it about isolation that is worrisome? Well, it's the whole social well-being. It's the idea of having social support to address the The greatest challenge anybody will ever face are the battles we experience internally. 
because we all have this reasoning part of our brain that we call the prefrontal cortex that's battling constantly with our amygdala, that part of our brain that is very impactful on behavior and has tremendous impact over emotions, but we don't think through that part of our brain. And there's this battle going on between the reasoning part of our brain and the amygdala, and therein lies some of our greatest stresses in life. And so some of the most important things that the reasoning part of our brain can get to support its battles and tremendous stresses is support of other people. Having someone outside yourself who recognizes your challenges, who works with you, or who you just simply can share and talk to and express emotions and concerns is a tremendous support to deal with the issues we all face internally. So, I mean, so it sounds like your relationships, wherever they are, your healthy relationships, and, and hopefully you have good relationships at work, uh, create a positive uh, feedback loop, if you will, uh, that may not get reinforcement. Things may look bleaker when you're alone all the time than they really are or when exactly. other people can reinforce. And there's no question that other people can cause you stress. <laughs> I mean, that's a big issue as well. But if all you're ever doing is dealing with your own battles inside and your own <laughs> Uh, discouragements or your own um, feelings of failure or your own feelings of you know disappointments it, it can be uh, clearly emotionally impactful in your roles as CEO of mental health hospitals in Orion what do you see as the consequences of the delayed care and what can employers do about it well the consequences are what we face the consequences are a very expensive healthcare system, people with lots of problems and challenges, not just mental health, but other that are exacerbated by those mental health issues. What we can do to begin to address that is early intervention. So in addition to running psychiatric hospitals, I've also managed population mental health for over 20 years. There is nothing more important in managing mental health of a population than early intervention. And that early intervention can come through lots of different ways. Culture of an employer can help support and get people the help that they need. Offering employee assistance programs that are generous and, and that actually do a lot to help employees remember that those services are there. Being proactive and using pulse surveys to identify people's emotional, social, financial, physical well-being, and then I and then proactively reaching out to people with compassion who are beginning to struggle. Those are all things that employers aren't doing well that they could be doing much better to proactively address the impact. Different individuals uh, have different attitudes about asking for help, getting help, uh, how they process the idea that they're depressed, even acknowledging that they're depressed. And I think, you know, I, I can't think exactly what the role would rule would be rather but it seems it varies quite a bit from you know, different people individuals cultures um, what do employers need to be generations exactly um, and it seems like depending on the composition maybe even the regional location of your workforce that may require a specific strategy for getting people to talk about it, acknowledge it. Uh, but just I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Well, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts because that's where I've spent the last number of years focusing on how do we get people to open up and address their issues early. And there's no question that there is an incredibly large stigma associated with the term mental health. So one of the best things we can do is use a non-mental health intervention that builds relationships and through those trusting relationships can be a catalyst at getting people over the barrier of mental health. For example, 
as I mentioned, employers are using pulse surveys to, and, and not necessarily the employer monitoring and reaching out, but having a third party that's confidential who reaches mm -hmm. out and often not a mental health professional because there's a stigma associated with a mental health professional. So a life coach or a health coach, someone who's a general wellness supporter, and then that person, as they build that rapport and trust, will start to open up. And then that catalyst can be so incredibly important at saying, let's let's get you into help. And here's why it could be so beneficial. And, and literally hand-holding the person through that transition to get through that barrier to get the help from a mental health professional. The other thing is having mental health professionals come out to the work site. That can be a huge impact. We've seen tremendous increase in utilization of like employee assistance programs when the therapist goes out to the work site and talks about things we all struggle with finances and relationships and children and raising teenagers and all the things we all face and when you have a clinician sharing their experience and helping people deal with those things in a very face-to-face -face or virtual environment where people go you know what i could connect with that person that person seems like a regular person just like me mm -hmm. and i think i would go talk to that person about my trouble that mm -hmm. is an incredibly powerful way to get people to overcome the barrier employee assistance programs or eaps most employers have them and i think we know that at least up until the pandemic i, I think the average use was four percent a year um talk to us a little bit about eaps are most effectively meeting mental health needs and if not what would a very good EAP include? If you look at the history of employee assistance programs that started 50, 60 years ago, they were very robust. They were very generous. It was about helping people a lot of times with substance abuse or other mental health issues. But over the years, they have become commoditized. And I don't fault the EAPs for that. I fault the buyers, employers, because what's happened is often EAPs are a last minute decision and so often they're based on price. Nobody's looking at the utilization. No one's looking to see whether or not people are using it because they get paid on a capitation basis. The employee assistance program realizes that if no one uses it, they put that money in the bank. And if they're competing against other EAPs and they're all competing on price, everyone keeps dropping their price and hoping no one uses them. And so employers are getting for pennies on the dollar something called an EAP, and they can check the box that says, I have one, but no one uses them. And so employers have to realize that that's one of their greatest opportunity costs, that the fact that they're not spending a little bit more money on a generous EAP, I like EAPs that have no limits. And people say, well, then they can't be an EAP. Well, that's not true. If the limit, which an EAP requires, is based on the kind of help the person needs rather than the number of visits, most emotional challenges we face can be handled in a very solution-focused EAP environment that has no limits on the number of visits, but is not expected to go beyond those solution-focused resolution issues. Someone needing deep-seated mental health should be referred on into the health plan to get that help. But so much, often 90% of all issues can be handled in a no visit limit environment where solution focused counseling is using best practices of cognitive behavioral therapy and addressing people's challenges. Do you mean uh, there is a particular crisis and we got to work through the crisis as opposed to generalized serious underlying depression? 
Right. So we're not talking about taking the person back through their infant years, child years, teenage years, and kind of exploring all of the impact that's had on their underlying emotional psyche. We're not talking about deep-seated mental health therapy. We're talking about having some issue that's that's in front of the person that they're anxious over, depressed over, can't seem to be, can't seem to resolve. It could be relationships, could be a crisis financially. And it's about how do we use the person's best traits and skills to address that issue and to move on. There's um, been an explosion of new digital mental health programs, apps, web-based solutions, and uh, all indications are there more coming, you know, in the pipeline. Uh, I think we would want to consider what what does all of that mean? What role can they play? Uh, maybe what are the strengths? What are the limits? Uh, and how do they play to avoiding or addressing stigma and actually helping employees uh, either uh, get through situations or avoid challenging situations? I'm not going to profess to be an expert on mental health apps, but I do know that there are a lot of them out there. And I think the most important role they play is that they create a level of anonymity for the person who's experiencing some challenges, wants some help, but is struggling with that barrier. And so being able to use anonymously an electronic interface or intervention to help them support dealing with issues, I think has a tremendous role to play and is very much a part of the continuum of mental health solutions. However, that's limited. I mean, there's some wonderful AI chatbots that a person can interface with, in addition to the many apps that are out there that are very computer-driven AI-type interfaces that are very helpful and effective, but they'll never completely take the place of actually knowing that there's someone on the other end that actually Mm -hmm. can relate to you because the foundation of supporting emotional well-being is a relationship and rapport. There is nothing more important than that basic foundation is a trusting relationship that I feel like I can open up to and that that person is a real person who cares about me and is interested in my well-being. Virtual therapy, right? There's uh, that, That's been on the rise. In other words, uh, not physically going in to sit in front and talk in talk therapy, talking with the therapist in their office, but conducting that therapy virtually via Skype or video chat, something like that. Do you have any opinion on that? And where that might fit into um, uh, being provided and covered by the employer during work hours? I do believe that virtual therapy in a virtual environment will never take the full place of an actual face-to-face encounter. However, because of the logistic simplicity of putting people together virtually, there is a huge role and a great importance of promoting that virtual environment. So. The logistics of being able to put someone in front of someone else virtually is much easier than putting someone in front of someone face-to-face. It's more effective, I believe, long-term, if you can put someone face-to-face, but there are many people falling through the cracks because of the logistics of getting together face-to-face. And those cracks can be filled extremely well with a virtual therapy environment. Let's talk a little bit about your views in terms of why is culture so important and what role does it play in the mental health of employees? A great portion of our life is spent interfacing with the people we work with. Mm -hmm. So it's going to have a huge impact. And when the culture of the company is toxic, when a person doesn't feel supported, 
when a person feels like they're constantly having to run up against the politics of the organization and that it's not a servant leadership type environment where I feel like my company is there to support me in getting a good job done, but rather I'm supposed to be there to support the company and the, you know, that, that I'm constantly challenged or feeling stressed that I'm not able to do my work instead of being supported to where I can do a better job of my work has a tremendous impact on emotional well-being because we're spending so much time at work. And I'm a firm believer that companies that are successful, and there's a lot of good examples that recognize the importance of the emotional well-being and supporting that emotional well-being of their employees and the impact that having supported employees can have on the company's success is huge. And one of the greatest roles a CEO has is helping to build the culture of the company because often it's the personality of the CEO that drives culture into the organization, especially the medium-sized companies and small companies. The right. bigger you get, it's much, much more difficult to build the culture and you've got a lot more factors than just the CEO, but culture's huge. And there's great examples of companies that have recognized that. A good friend of mine, Dr. Andy Crichton, who led, who was the medical director for Prudential Financial for many years, has some great examples of what they have done to support the overall well-being of their employees to build a culture that's productive. Um, I, I know you're a speaker for Vistage, and you've spoken to literally hundreds of CEOs about this issue. What kind of reaction do you get from the CEOs? Well, I love to ask a group of CEOs, usually 15 to 20, in a Vistage environment, why are you willing to spend the second largest cost of doing business on offering health benefits for your employees. And, and what do you want from all of that? Well, they tell me they want to attract and retain employees. They want good, healthy employees. And yet the way they buy healthcare, the way they align the healthcare system with them, the efforts they put into building effective, healthy cultures are often missing. It's a huge, I believe it's one of our country's greatest economic crises, and I think it's one of the greatest failures of employers is they spend so much of the time trying to produce the product that they're missing this huge way they buy healthcare and the way they build a health, and what I call an aspirational healthcare benefit for their employees and how they support through culture, the health and productivity of their workforce. We can be far more productive and far more successful as companies if the leaders and the leadership spent more time building supportive benefits and supportive cultures for their employees. Like I said before, I think it's all about the personality of the, the CEO. Uh -huh. When you speak to a group of 15 or 20 CEOs, those that have the personality that is more supportive have already worked hard to build those cultures. So what do you say to reluctant CEOs and boards on why they need to proactively address employee mental health after COVID? It doesn't take more than five minutes to help a group of any kind of CEO see how the lack of focus on mental health has driven them to have a lot of problems. It's really not a hard discussion to have, and it's not hard to convince a group of CEOs to see that having a partnership with a preventative mental health organization can very well be the very best partner and strategic partner for the organization. It's not hard to explain that. It's not hard for people to see that, mm -hmm. and, but, it, but they've never looked at it. They've never thought about it. They've never spent the time to consider it. That's the problem. 
Once they do, it's like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. Why am I spending 25 cents for an employee assistance program when I spend a little bit more? I spend $600 per single employee on an entire healthcare system, and I'm not willing to spend $3 to address the most important risk factor? It's like, this is nuts. This is like so opposite and backwards. It's crazy. And, and it doesn't take a long time to help a group of CEOs say, you're focused on the wrong thing. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, I, I think this was very helpful. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. To learn more about our resources and programs that help employers make employee well-being a bottom-line business strategy, please visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com.